OG, normally we give a shout out to the men and women of our armed forces and we have some fun with it. But obviously there is a reason that we give a shout out to these people and it's because often they put themselves in harm's way. And sadly, last week was a horrible reminder of the incredible service these people do for our country and for uh, allies of our country um, trying to get people out of Kabul. Yeah. Yeah. On behalf of Navy Federal and the men and women of the Stacking Benjamin show, I don't know, saying the words, a big shout out to the men and women, but uh, maybe just a sincere thank you for the work you do is, uh, is a great way to start the show. Semper Fi Marines. So you'll pick me up tonight at 745? Oh, well, no, I got a few things to, to take care of first, but what, why don't we make it quarter to eight? <laughs> Stop it. Okay, 745. Live from Joe's mom's basement, it's The Stacking Benjamin Show. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and do you want to become smarter and more successful? What if the solution were as simple as reading just a few pages a day? We'll learn more about this simple yet powerful habit from the authors of the new book, Read to Lead, Jeff Brown and Jesse Wisniewski. Plus, El Salvador is about to make Bitcoin an officially accepted currency. How will this impact crypto as a whole? We'll break this down and share our thoughts on this headline. Plus, we've got a great TikTok minute. Later, we'll toss out the Haven lifeline to Stephen, who wants Joe and OG's advice for what they wish they knew at the start of their careers. Hey, Stephen, between us, these guys work in a basement. I don't think you want their advice. And I'll share some book-related trivia. And now, two guys who are ready to roar into September, it's Joe and O-J-J-J-J-J-G. August, in like a heat wave, and if you're in Texas, out like a heat wave. Hey everybody, welcome to Sweating While You Podcast for the win. I'm Joe Salcihi, Average Joe Money on Twitter, and across the card table from me for another week, the last show that we're going to have in August, <laughs> saying goodbye to August, hello to September, it's Mr. OG. It's going to be fall pretty soon. Can't believe it. Are you excited? It is a whole new world out there. Man, we've got a whole new world today. We've got Jeff Brown and Jesse Wisniewski. Of course, uh, Jeff Brown has the incredible podcast, Read the Lead. They're going to talk about OG, not just reading is fundamental, which I think we all know, but how do you set yourself up a reading curriculum to win? How do you cut to the stuff where you're designing a future for yourself? Jeff and Jesse upstairs waiting for their big moment. But before them, of course, we've got a fantastic headline. We've got the TikTok minute. But even before that, this episode is sponsored by State Farm. You a small business owner looking for insurance that fits your needs and budget? Well, look no further than State Farm. 
State Farm agents are not just insurance providers, they're also small business owners who live and work right here in your community. They understand the unique challenges of running and protecting a small business. When it comes to small business insurance, State Farm knows what it takes. Create a plan that fits your needs and your budget. State Farm agents are ready to help you choose personalized policies that truly understand your business. Ensure your small business with a fellow small business owner. Talk to a State Farm agent today and get started on personalized small business insurance that fits your needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Jeff Brown, Jesse Wisniewski, getting ready to come down to the basement. So let's get to our headline first. Hello, darlings. And now it's time for your favorite part of the show, our stacking Benjamin's headlines. Our headline today comes to us from the Wall Street Journal. This is written by Santiago Perez and Caitlin Ostroff. Uh, listen to this one. El Salvador gets ready for a risky Bitcoin experiment. I saw this. Yeah, in less than two weeks, El Salvador is going to become the first country to adopt Bitcoin as its national currency. Nobody knows what comes next. The government of the impoverished Central American nation, this piece reads, aims to spend up to $75 million as part of a plan to hand out $30 to people who sign up to an e-wallet called Chivo or Cool. That software-based system would allow an estimated 2.5 million Salvadorians to buy goods or pay for services in U.S. dollars or Bitcoin, El Salvador's two official currencies, as of September 7th. We've talked in the past, OG, about crypto being the Wild West, but a government coming in on the side of crypto versus China coming out in some ways on the other side of crypto, this, this, this sets up an interesting, I feel like, next chapter for crypto. Isn't the purpose of the DeFi movement to cut the government out of the monetary system? Well, the one thing I think you and I have said from the very beginning is that is a dream that will never happen. You will have government involvement. So El Salvador, if you can't beat them, join them. Yeah. I mean, one of the benefits of the transaction capabilities of cryptocurrency or any sort of digital currency like that is the speed and the accessibility for everybody. We've talked in the past about how many people are unbanked you know, the payday loan business and how treacherous that is for people and kind of the cycle that you get into if you get and go down that path and how impossible it is to get out of. And part of that is because, you know, you bounced a check in 1996 and now, you know, you've got a little smudge on your record and nobody wants to give you a checking account type of thing. So it's just yeah. a pain in the butt. Whereas, you know, you've got your phone, you can go buy groceries with it instantaneously. You can transact other large purchases instantaneously. And I'll be interested to see how it goes, you know, in terms of, uh, in terms of the adoption rate. And I'm wondering what's going to happen when, you know, you buy a gallon of milk for 0.00000001 Bitcoin and you're the merchant who acquires that Bitcoin and then it goes down by 40% next Tuesday and now you don't have enough money to buy more milk to stock the shelves for next week. You know, yeah, I, or see whatever. I see two things going on here. I remember two decades ago reading a book that shaped Joe's young mind at that point, uh, the very famous investor, Jim Rogers, in his book. And to be clear, two decades ago, you were not very young, but go ahead. <laughs> Thank you. I'm standing right here. 
You know, uh, Jim Rogers talked about one of the biggest issues is any regime's ability to print money can cause some long-term issues for that economy. And if El Salvador is having issues, I think it'd be very easy for a political regime to get into a paper chase where they just start, Hey, let's, let's start handing out cash and sure might solve the problem over the short term, but over the long term, it's going to create a whole another set of problems. So you get rid of that issue. But on the other side, OG, to your point, when the price of bread fluctuates by a ton on a daily basis, yeah. Now you have a government's ability to do zero or a government affiliated, I guess we can call the Fed a government affiliated, not not a piece of the government on purpose, kind of off to the side, but you've got this Federal Reserve over there that can try to counteract some of the inflationary issues and El Salvador won't be able to do that. Uh, yeah, I mean, I see there's a lot of issues especially with the fluctuation of the value of it because you sit there and you look at it and say well, today it will cost me, you know, cost me $6 to buy a loaf of bread, but maybe tomorrow only cost me $4. So I should wait or, you know, my paycheck got deposited. But today while I was at work, you know, I made a thousand bucks this week, but now I only have 875 in my Bitcoin wallet because it went down. Yeah. You know, it's just, I don't know how to solve that problem. Yeah, and do yet. merchants on that note, let's talk about this from an investor perspective. You know, we've talked in the past, initially we said that uh, investing in crypto was a pretty bad idea in the early days. Then we changed uh, our thought process, I'm going to say, what, five or six years ago, and said, uh, you know, this may be something good, but it is the Wild West and we don't know which one's going to win. So be prepared for the Wild West. I also know, OG, that over the last year, really, you know what, I'm going to go right to when Kevin Rose was on my uh, opinion changed even further. He said that, yeah, if you're somebody grandma's age or somebody with a really low risk tolerance, of course you want to wait on crypto until all the volatility has gone. But if you're somebody that can afford to lose some money and you're interested in making good money, well, getting into it in a responsible way might be a good thing here. Where do you stand on the whole crypto as investment idea? Well, it, it's certainly not an investment in the context of you know, I put $300 a month in this and I'm pretty certain that this will turn me into a millionaire in 30 years. You could put $300 into it. It could turn you into a millionaire tomorrow afternoon, or you could put $300 into it for 30 years and you could be dead broke. I don't think that we have the same risk associated with buying stocks of the S&P or, you know, the world, the global economy. So in that context, I do think it's much more of a speculation than anything. Not quite the same as putting a thousand bucks in the slot machine, but a similar type of experience. I was thinking about this personally a couple of months ago. I had, ex just like you, probably have some money in Bitcoin, have some money in Ethereum. To your point, by the way, uh, in the St. Louis Today, and I'll link to this in the show notes, uh, this piece by Katie Brockman, she says that only 14% of U.S. adults own crypto, but... Crypto exchange Gemini reports that around 63% of Americans classify themselves as, quote, crypto curious. So I think that's, that's right where you're headed. Crypto curious. Are you crypto curious? That's a search term. But what I was thinking about was how mad I would be if something like Dogecoin 10 years from now was a thousand bucks a coin, right? Like, A, if that happened... Because it's happened already. It happened with Ethereum. It happened with Bitcoin. 
And here's this other, you know, I mean, there's hundreds of other ones, right? Maybe even thousands, I'm not sure. But um, what? how would I feel if Dogecoin was a thousand bucks a coin and it's been 10 years and I had the chance to buy it at 11 cents versus how would I feel if I put 500 bucks in it at 11 cents per and it went away and it just vanished? Which one of those two is the greater sin? And in my book, the greater sin is, I had a grandpa one time that could have bought Dogecoin at 11 cents and we'd be gajillionaires. I, I put my 500 bucks in. I said, I said, I will take that gamble that it's either worth some multiple of it, some 10, 20x multiple, some thousand x multiple, or it's worth nothing. And so for 500 bucks, so I'm in the crypto curious side. Yeah, this piece says that cryptocurrency, to your point, falls into very high risk, very high reward category. It's far riskier than investing in stocks, which actually brings up another point that I wanted to ask you about. If you're going to invest in it, you know, now we have coming out these uh, ETFs, which invest in crypto. Do you think maybe for somebody who's curious but doesn't really know what they're doing, investing in an ETF might be a good place to start? Have any of them been actually approved yet? Yeah, they're all brand spanking new. There's five on this piece that I'll reference uh, from Market Insider. Amplify Transformational Data Sharing ETF, uh, which is ticker symbol BLOCK, B-L-O-K. Uh, Siren NASDAQ Next Gen Economy. Here's a Bitcoin ETF, Purpose Bitcoin ETF, BTTC. I know that when we talked to the gentleman from Granite Shares a few weeks ago, they're getting ready to come out with, with them. So there are a few that are crypto-curious which are playing around the edges with mining companies and with uh, blockchain-related companies. That's another question, OG. Maybe just buy in a stock like Coinbase or one of these public mining companies as a default? Yeah, maybe. I just keep coming back to the two ends of the spectrum, right? Because it's so volatile, one of two things will happen. It will either be worth nothing or it'll be worth some large multiple. And, and it has to be that. If you understand kind of risk and return and you think about risk and return as it relates to other asset classes, treasuries, long-term corporate bonds, large company U.S. stocks, small company U.S. stocks, you see that kind of trend of I get higher and higher return potential, but I get higher and higher variability. You know, you say, well, I look at that big chart and it says that the best thing to own are small company stocks. They average 13% a year. Awesome. I'll just do that. Except that you have to be okay with minus 68. So two-thirds of your money could go away at any moment to average 13. So now you go, well, crypto does 100% return. Well, what must you be okay with? <laughs> you know, you must also therefore be okay with a minus 100 at any moment's notice. For me, I'm okay with that as it relates to a very, very, very small portion. Yeah. So if you're getting in... As I talk through this, maybe resigning yourself to the fact that just get the hell in. Well, and also remember that if it's a small dollar amount, using my example of 500 bucks or something, the payoff isn't, it goes from 500 to 600. Right. The payoff is 500 to 500,000, which means right. explosive growth. So you got to just hang on to it. You just have to like forget that it existed. Yeah. Have your frozen moment. Let it go. 10 years from now, look it up. I'll link to all of these 
sources on our show notes page at stackybenjamins.com. And of course, if you want even more on crypto, Brooke has more in our free guide. I love the guide. Stackingbenjamins.com forward slash stacker. Signs you up for that. And you'll receive that every Sunday night and Tuesday in preparation for the next day's show. It's time for our TikTok Minute OG. TikTok Minute is where we take a look at a recent TikTok, or in this case, we're going to go to Instagram creation. Sometimes they're awesome. Sometimes they're tongue-in-cheek, awesome. Air quotes, awesome. Which one do you think it's going to be today, OG? Is it going to be- Air quotes. It's it's air quotes. Well, that's what we had last Monday. Let's see if we got a today's TikTok, which is really an Instagram reel. This is from American Baron, and it's about the nature of uh, retiring early. Let's listen in. Oh, oh finally, we're done. You know, it's only been 10 minutes and I'm already loving retirement. Oh, we don't have to work a day in our lives. Now we have all this time to finally... Um... Uh, uh, do, uh, uh, you know, do, do what we want. Yes, do what we want. Mm. What do we want? I mean, you know, relax, not work, not work. Uh, there, there we go. That's why we work, so, so we don't, we don't have to work. Right, right, right. Life is not about working. No, of course not. Which is why we spent most of our lives working so that we can relax and do nothing yeah so we can relax and do nothing so we've been working all our lives towards nothing big pause (laughs) that is so true yep so so true what are you gonna do when you retire uh, I don't know. I just, play golf every day. I'm just not going to work here. It's going to be great. I'm not going to work here. And now I have no idea what to do with myself. Yeah. Play golf every day. It isn't about the money. Not about the money. How do you, how do you knock people off of that when they just say, oh, I don't know what I'll do. I just want to have enough money to do it. Like it's all just spreadsheets and, and charting and rules of thumb. And hey, I just want to make sure I have enough so I can just go do whatever. Like how do you get people past that? It's really interesting because generally speaking, the people who are a a, a driven enough person, let's say, to strive for financial independence and give up things today, you know, in order to better their future, you know, all that delayed gratification stuff also are really driven people. So they get to that point and they they do get, I mean, you get bored. Struggle. I mean... Or you get to that financial independence time, you're in your mid-50s, and you say, yeah, why would I quit? Those idiots are paying me $300,000 a year in stock options. (laughs) And the reason that that happens is because there's no real clear vision for what the you know, what the future is going to be. Yeah. That, that escalator to me is pretty scary too, because you're handcuffed to the money just because you refuse to think about what's next. If you love what you're doing and it's a job that really suits you, then do it forever. But if it doesn't, I saw that far too often, far, far, far too often. I'll think about that later. You know, you and I, we've talked a lot about the coaching system that we're in over at Strategic Coach, and uh, that's the first thing that they force you to do. And it's this uh, whole thing about how do you want people to see you when you die? And what type of a legacy do you want to leave? And I think that was a big part of it for me was starting to look beyond myself then I realized that, uh, number one, how much I love doing this, but then also number two, the things I wanted to do in my community 
and with my family, all of a sudden I had all these goals and now I could totally see my time being filled with lots of different things. Thanks for that Instagram reel, MG Golden Girl. If you have an online TikTok reel, something that we should take a look at for this segment, shoot those to us. MG Golden Girl, by the way, just uh, direct message us on Instagram and uh, got it from her. You can also email it to me at joe at stackingbenjamins.com. All right, coming up next, we've got uh, Jeff, the Jeff Brown from the Read to Lead podcast. Oh, gee, as you know, this guy has interviewed some of the best and the brightest authors with some of the big ideas that have shaped the last, well, nearly a decade that he's been doing the Read to Lead podcast. And Jesse Wisniewski is a guy who has worked in a lot of different jobs. And because of that, because of the consulting nature of his job, he's had to create his own future. And uh, well, we're going to let them tell their story about how you can read to lead, setting up your own curriculum for success and more Benjamins. But uh, to get there, I think that means here he is. It's about time you got here, man. Uh, We'll scoot over. And uh, Doug, what you got for us? Hey there, stackers. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, and we haven't heard from Jeff and Jesse yet, but I'm on board with these guys. Reading books is the bomb. It just so happens that I've done my fair share of reading, and to better help my loyal fans learn more from even more books, this is a great time to share a jam-packed summary so you can get the lessons from all of my knowledge in no time flat. Listen to this. What do you need to know from... What to expect when you're expecting. Uh, you're going to have a baby. Duh. And then there's uh, the subtle art of not giving a f- Easy one. Just don't give a f- uh, I'm just getting started. Before I give you a few more, let's get to today's trivia. In the spirit of books, there are some really bad ones out there. When I was researching which books I'd break down, it was a mystery why some people even read most of these books. Which leads to our question. Who are any of the top three mystery authors of all time. I'll be back with your answer faster than you can mysteriously guess the answer. When you become a member of Navy Federal, you know, life gets better, OG. And we talked before about buying cars. And I got to tell you, the app that Navy Federal has makes the car buying experience so much better. It is, you know, they talk about cars being fully loaded. Their car buying experience Also fully loaded. You can finance, buy, protect, and enjoy your auto purchase all through one convenient place. They have low rates and pre-approval that's good for 90 days so you know what you can afford when you shop. They're also always available 24-7 with their member service representatives to answer any questions. And because you're a Navy Federal member, love this, you're going to get exclusive member savings with Carfax, Geico, and Sirius XM. So you can learn more at NavyFederal.org forward slash car buying. That's NavyFederal.org forward slash car buying credit and collateral subject to approval. Your actual savings off MSRP may vary. Navy Federal Credit Union is federally, federally insured by NCUA. This episode is sponsored by State Farm. You a small business owner looking for insurance that fits your needs and budget? Well, look no further than State Farm. 
State Farm agents are not just insurance providers, they're also small business owners who live and work right here in your community. They understand the unique challenges of running and protecting a small business. When it comes to small business insurance, State Farm knows what it takes. Create a plan that fits your needs and your budget. State Farm agents are ready to help you choose personalized policies that truly understand your business. Ensure your small business with a fellow small business owner. Talk to a State Farm agent today and get started on personalized small business insurance that fits your needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Hey there, stackers. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, back with a few more book summaries to illustrate the power of reading that we're about to hear about with Jeff and Jessica. How about this one? The four-hour work week. (laughs) That's just a bold-faced lie. The Alchemist. Not a book about how you can make your own gold. Okay, last one. The places you'll go. You're not going any of those places because they're all made up. That's just my first round, people. I'll be working on a whole series to help you get smarter even faster. Coming soon. So let's get back to our trivia. The question was... Who are any of the top three mystery authors of all time? Coming in at number three, the author of the Sherlock Holmes series, it's Arthur Conan Doyle. At number two, the creator of a few detectives like Hercules Poirot and Miss Marple, it's Agatha Christie. And number one, the creator of Inspector Magritte, it's Georges Simenon. Who's heard of that guy? All right, let's not mysticize you any further. I'm just going to hand this over to Joe, Jeff, and Jess. See ya! And here they come down the stairs to the basement. Look at this motley crew. Jeff Brown, (laughs) Jesse Wisniewski coming down. Have a seat, gentlemen. How are you? Good. Thanks. Well, thank you. Well, I'm lovely place. uh, well, Well, thank you. Well, I'm talking to you. Let's kick this off with a question for you. 43 million adults in the USA, I was reading, possess low literacy skills. And that's kind of the, the bottom side of this. Why were you so focused on reading when you set out to, to make this book? It really started out for me. The first book I ever bought on my own was The Art of War by Sun Tzu. I was going on a date with a girl who is now my wife. Because girls love ancient combat. That's what (laughs) they they do. To your point, I was going into combat to win the affection of this woman. And so since she was a reader, I figured I should actually read a book and have something potentially intelligent to talk about. And I probably just at least in passing mentioned that I read the book and maybe let out a couple of grunts about what I thought about it. But needless to say, to answer your question, reading for me has been just so transformative in terms of you know learning new skills, maybe going through challenges, uh, solving problems, uh, working through personal or professional issues. And since I've had such a tremendous impact of reading on my life, uh, this started with, well, I want to share what I've learned with others. And that's what really started the motivation for me behind uh, originally writing this book and outlining it before working with Jeff. You know, it's funny, Jesse, as you're talking in a couple great lines, uh, the best mm-hmm. battle is the one that's never fought is one of my favorite lines from Sun Tzu. And reading kind of does that for you. It looked like you had early on in the book, you talk about uh, an issue in your life where there was a battle about to be fought. Your job was going to be eliminated, right? 
And you kind right. of, to use more Sun Tzu, you kind of redefine the battlefield using reading. Yeah, exactly. It was one of those issues that the organization was just going through some changes. I saw the writing on the wall and knew that I needed to make some sort of pivot with my work. My family and I had just moved cross country for me to take this position. I picked up a tremendous amount of books on that particular topic. So I figured, okay, here's an opportunity. I need to learn more about this. I kind of understand some about it. I didn't have the resources or the time to actually maybe go back to school or get a certificate, but I did have the time and the money to purchase a bunch of books on the topic, which then afforded me the opportunity to learn what I needed to learn, put together a proposal, some different ideas, pitch the idea. Long story short, it worked out, made the pivot and the change internally with the organization. And now it's a story in a book. That's so amazing. <laughs> Another great book is Who Moved My Cheese, right? You saw the cheese moving and you, you moved ahead of time. Yes. So yeah. the cheese was on the move and I needed to catch up with the cheese. <laughs> Jeff, the early days of your cheese sounds like you read J.R.R. Tolkien for fun. You read whatever they told you to read in high school and college. And as a 20 year old, you're like, forget this reading thing. I want nothing to do with this. <laughs> That's exactly right. I left school going, gosh, thank goodness all the learning is done. I don't have to do that anymore. The school really educated out of me, if I'm being honest, the desire to read. And, and I don't mean any ill will toward teachers. My sister's a teacher and a darn good one. And some of teachers of mine in the past have had some of the biggest influence on my life. But you know, the school, the way it was structured then and in large part now, is assigning work to us that we don't really like, <laughs> some things we have to learn. That just, to me, did not make for an enjoyable experience at all, and I just couldn't wait for it to be over. And so for the better part of 10 years, Joe, I went through the entirety of my 20s without reading at all of any kind, with the exception of maybe an uh, entertainment magazine of some type. Um, and it wasn't until I was in my early 30s that sort of serendipitously uh, the stars and planets aligned. Uh, a leader that I looked up to recommended a book to me, and that happened to be Seth Godin's Purple Cow. I was not aware, this is embarrassing to admit, but I just was not aware that there were books out there like that, uh, that I could actually find books I enjoyed reading that weren't fiction. As I began to dive into that book, it just opened my eyes to a world of possibilities, similar to what Jesse was just saying. And I thought, you know, people much, much smarter than me have written their ideas and their thinking and, and all of that in, a, in something as easy to consume as a book. And in the span of a few hours, I can know what they spent years learning. Uh, where do I sign up? And from that point on, I could not get enough. I started reading. That was 2003, about a book a week. And I haven't stopped since. And it launched a podcast and big part of the reason why we're here today. Yeah, I've got so many questions about that. What I think we're talking about is, Jeff, that you made yourself a curriculum. And Jesse, when you were thinking you might lose your job, you created a curriculum for how to not just keep your job, but how to succeed. And I think we'll come back to this idea of designing a curriculum over time. But before mm -hmm. I get to that, where does the phrase read the lead originally come from? Ooh, uh, you know, I've heard it uh, a lot of different places. In fact, probably more places since I started my podcast than I realized existed before I started the podcast. Uh, the first time I heard it, it was uttered by a mentor of mine, a guy by the name of Michael Hyatt. And I think the way he said it was leaders read and readers lead. And that just stuck with me. That really resonated with me the first time I heard him say that. And I think, uh, was it one of our former presidents who said all leaders are readers, but not all readers are leaders or something along those lines. So similar sort of uh, quote. But when I heard that phrase from Michael, leaders read and readers lead, again, it just resonated with me. 
when it came time to start my podcast and I had decided to do a podcast where I interview other authors about their books, about business books and nonfiction in particular, I took that phrase, that quote, and I just shortened it to read, delete. And at the time I thought, well, this is pretty original, yeah. you know, but <laughs> since then I found out that's not necessarily the case. <laughs> <laughs> but original is not always great. You know, one of my favorite books, another one of my favorite books, Austin Kleon, Steal Like an Artist, right? I mean, uh, uh, mm-hmm. originality isn't the great thing. It's building on the backs of other people so that we continue to learn. It's funny that you say, Jeff, that readers lead and leaders read because Jesse, I believe you write that an Oxford University study found that 16-year-olds who read books, I think, outside of school were later in life more likely to have managerial positions than those who did not read. Did I get that right? Yeah, that's right. So if that's the case, I mean, building a curriculum from the time that you're 16 really matters toward your success. Yeah, but yeah, so I think it's equal parts curriculum, kind of like what you highlighted with my example with my previous employment. And and since then, I've done that on numerous occasions. For instance, I've got a stack of books behind me on branding, positioning that I'm getting ready to go through for the same fact. It's like, all right, I need to do a deep dive on this particular subject. Let me create my own curriculum. I'll, you know, digest other material, blog posts, watch videos, listen to podcasts and stuff. But it's just one big step I take toward creating curriculum doing a deep dive, really learning it. So that's one big part of it. And then two, just reading in and of itself, whether you're reading books on leadership or branding or content marketing or whatever it could be, but just the act of reading studies have found that it makes you more empathetic. So which is a tremendous quality as a leader. Mm -hmm. So being able to relate with someone emotionally, kind of walking within his or her shoes, that goes a long way to influencing someone for the better. So I found that surprising. I also found Jeff that decision making, right? That you write that uh, decision making is better when you read. And and I went, of course, I've read all these nonfiction books and Mm -hmm. all these nonfiction books make me a better decision maker. But you guys say, Jeff, that there's a different path to better decision making and it's not nonfiction. It's actually fiction. (laughs) Well, uh, that's more Jesse's territory than mine, if I'm being completely honest. But I believe that fiction plays a role in helping us be more creative. I think it plays a role in helping us make better decisions, as Jesse was just alluding to. I I think it makes us more empathetic. Uh, We identify with characters. We better understand what they're going through. And that translates to our lives and our relationships. So, yeah, I think fiction is not to be discounted. You know, I read mostly uh, nonfiction, I'll admit. But I think there's a place for fiction, too, especially when it comes to our relationships and, as Jesse alluded, our leadership opportunities. Well, we've got some hardcore optimizer nerds that listen to our show, right? <laughs> and, and, and when I say that, all respect to these people. But, Jesse, when it comes to fiction, a lot of the optimizers will say, well, that's a waste of time. Nonfiction gets right to the point. What is it about <laughs> fiction that optimizers should tie in? Like, yeah, so with decision making, it's. In a sense, it's twofold. Like, yeah, there are nonfiction books that will help you solve a specific challenge or overcome a particular problem. So it'll give you specific information on a specific decision. But now when it comes to fiction, what studies have found is that we get less of a need of what's called cognitive closure. Mm. Now, I'm not a trained psychologist, so I'm going to just talk about it on a surface level. But in a sense, cognitive closure is a way of saying that 
individually, we tend to want to avoid ambiguity when we prefer to make uh, decisions and perhaps just quickly without maybe thinking through them. But with reading fiction, what they found over time is it gives us a desire not to do that and to avoid it and to actually kind of make more informed decisions because we just don't have a desire to make a quick snap decision Mm. on something. It's almost like you become okay with uncertainty. Yeah, Mm. absolutely. Especially within leadership realms or in management, or if you're a parent or guardian, uh, relationships, like, you know, there's a lot of ambiguity there and being uncomfortable with that goes a long way in being able to just succeed or be more successful in his relationships and challenges. I remember when I thought I was going to become the next great middle grade fiction writer, I went Mm -hmm. to a writing conference and this was, well, you'll know when it was based on the story. As one of the benefits of going to this conference, you'd get to meet with an agent. I was really excited. New writer, had my manuscript nearly finished uh, for this baseball book that I was writing. I knew enough to do some research ahead of time. And they said, ask a lot of questions, ask as many questions you possibly can. And the last question I asked this agent was, so what's happening now in the world of middle grade fiction? And she said, there's this woman who's breaking all the rules. She's taking these teenagers and she's putting them in an arena where they have to kill each other. (laughs) And, And in middle grade fiction, you don't kill other kids. And now there's this ambiguity, right? I mean, and as you're talking, Jesse, I'm thinking about all the decision-making. Of course, it went into the Hunger Games, right? Which the the next year was huge. (laughs) I go home and I tell my my wife, Cheryl, that there's this horrible book coming out where kids have to kill each other. And of course, she read the entire series. but And she loved it. (laughs) Yeah, but but there's so much gray area. And being, I guess, to illustrate what you're talking about, Jesse, being okay with gray area, this ambiguity, and I don't want to kill other people. And what happens when I'm forced to? Let's talk about how, how you guys design your curriculum, you know, going back to that word. So you have a reading curriculum. You say it's not just reading exactly what you like all the time. So, uh, Jeff, let's start with you. How do you design what comes up next? Yeah, for me, I identify something that I recognize I need to get better at or have potential to get better at. And that's pretty much everything. But I narrow it down <laughs> to <laughs> one or two things. And as Jesse was alluding earlier, I began researching books on that particular topic. I'll give you a couple of examples. When I was in the radio business, um, this was around late 2007 or eight, and, and social media is, is coming on strong. And, and all of us are trying to, regardless of our industry, trying to figure this thing out. And how's this going to impact our industry? And how are we going to leverage this as a tool to maybe better connect with listeners and that sort of thing? And so I began reading everything I could find about social media and social media marketing and best practices. And what I found in short order is I was one of the few people that worked for my nationwide company that was doing anything like that, that was exhibiting or or trying this habit of intentional, consistent reading. And what that made happen was that uh, through that process, I found that by doing that one thing that nobody else was doing, I put myself ahead of the rest of the pack in so many ways. So here's what I mean by that. For starters, I began being asked to do things that other people weren't being asked to do. So that meant as I was trying new things based on what I was reading, as I was failing at some of those things, I was getting noticed. The things that I did that didn't work quickly got forgotten. The things that I did that I was implementing and executing on got me noticed. And I was asked then to go, okay, you need to present to this group about what you're learning. You need to go present to that group about what you're learning. That led to me going, okay, I'm going to be presenting now. I better read some books on public speaking. (laughs) So I began doing that in public speaking uh, presentation development and design and everything you can think about related to public speaking, I would read about. 
And when it came time for the president of our company to then uh, visit stations uh, to develop his vision as a good leader does, he, he or she seeks input from those you know in their charge. He was making the rounds to stations around the country and saying, OK, what do you think should be a part of our next 10 years? And when it came to him coming to our station, my boss said, I want you to be the person presenting to the president. And this was in part because I was learning about this process. I was getting better at it. I was exhibiting practice and trying things that nobody else was trying. I did that. And then after seeing that presentation, the president said, hey, I want you to come and present that to the executive team at our annual meeting. Mm. That had never happened before. So I did that. And then once he began refining his vision, he came back to me months later and said, now I'm going to communicate this vision to the world, Jeff. I want you to create the presentation that I'm going to use to do that. So all of those opportunities and numerous promotions along the way all came about because I was doing one thing that virtually none of my coworkers and colleagues were doing, and that was reading about the things I needed to learn about creating that curriculum. And I continue to do that today. In large part, the last several years, it's been around mindset and understanding, uh, Joe, that that I'm capable of far more than I give myself <laughs> credit for. Right. That uh, that when I open my, my mind, when I think about abundance instead of scarcity, I realize that there is so much more than I could accomplish if I'll take action. I used to think I had to believe myself enough to do this thing or that thing. Now I understand that the number one key is to take action first. And then as I take action, the belief and the confidence and all those things that I think have to be there before I start, those things catch up eventually. Jesse, how about you? How does your curriculum work? Uh, Very similar to what Jeff's talking there. I think before answering that, what I'd like to encourage people tuning in and listening today is that we, you know, we're not talking about reading perhaps a number of books to obtain a PhD or a master's degree. When you think about it this way, that, for instance, 27 percent of Americans haven't read at least one book in the past year. And then most Americans haven't read more than four books in the past year. So when it comes to just understanding a particular topic or digging deep into something to better understand it, you know, reading one book, at least on a topic, means you're going to know more than most people read four more books on that particular topic. You're going to know more than, you know, even more Americans. This isn't a way of just saying comparing. This is just saying a way of, hey, when it comes to really digging in and understanding something, we're not talking about investing thousands of dollars or times. We're talking literally like, you know, a curriculum for you could be two to four, three to five books on something. Right. You really just want to better understand something on friendship, marriage, business, finances, parenting, I mean, so on and so forth. I mean, just pick up two or three books on that topic to just get started, like your own curriculum as you get into it and start reading and understanding more so then that's just going to start reading, you know, leading you down so many different paths that you can pursue. But yeah, when it comes to me, I've been since, you know, I've been doing this like Jeff for so many years now, and I've gone through undergraduate and graduate school and stuff. I'm, I'm pretty accustomed to it, but it's, uh, you know, for instance, I was alluding to branding earlier. So that was a particular topic I wanted to dig in more to soon, just because, as Jeff pointed out something, it's like a particular gap I feel or experience in my professional work that I want to dig into and highlight and just go in all. So over the years, I've read plenty of books on marketing. So I had a kind of a good idea what I should, shouldn't read, looked online to find what are books people are recommending and they even reached out to people, you know, peers or people acquainted with or just even shot someone a tweet online, like, hey, what books do you recommend on this particular topic? And so from that, I'm able to put together 
my curriculum, like, okay, I want to read these books on this topic. And while I'm reading through those books, it's uh, taking notes on those. Uh, so one system that I use that we talk about in the book is a note card system. After reading a book, making the marks and notes and stuff in there, then transferring those notes into index cards. So that way I have them in one place to pull on later for whatever I'm working on or perhaps a book or article I'm writing. You're going through there, taking the notes, saving those notes. I would imagine that helps later. with your retention too, Jesse. Oh, yeah, 100 uh, percent. Because one of the things even with that, like I love writing stuff down now, uh, like, for instance, uh, using a paper journal for daily and weekly planning, just the act of like writing down stuff and taking it from, you know, an app or a digital tool, like a project management tool for work and just simply putting it down on paper or just writing notes down during the notes like on paper helps me to recall and remember what everything was going on and stuff. So, yeah. A couple tactical things that I want to ask about. We have master class as a sponsor. We've had Skillshare as a sponsor in the past. YouTube, as you both know, has this monster mm -hmm. catalog of videos. Mm -hmm. What do books give you that video systems don't give you? I'll answer that. I think for me, it's everything in one place. You know, uh, an author has put oftentimes years of thought into a book. And I can take it with me, right? It's everything in one place and I can take it with me and I can easily share it. I can hand it to you. I can hand it to someone else. And that's obviously a lot more difficult to achieve with a video or with a blog post or a podcast even. I can sometimes reach a lot more people with a podcast or a blog post or a video. But books are unique in that way. It's everything in one place and I can so easily share it with, with someone else once I've gotten out of it what I've sought to get out of it. I was thinking as you were talking to Jeff about handing it to somebody the book is 80,000 words and the video might be 10 minutes and uh, there's a depth of knowledge that you can get from the book. Yeah, there certainly is. Now, sometimes that's overwhelming for some. It's like, well, that's why I want to watch the video because right. I can I can consume that in five minutes or whatever versus however long it might take me to read this book. If that's you, if you struggle with that, uh, that's where some of the techniques that Jesse and I talk about in the book can can come to your aid, whether that's skimming or speed reading. I like skimming personally. Jesse's the speed reading expert. Jesse, a related question Audiobook versus the tactile book. A lot of people that listen to this show also like audiobooks. Is there one that's preferable to the other? Or are they better in different situations? Uh, I think, yeah, they're better in different situations, whether you're reading or listening to an audiobook. So, like, audiobooks are helpful. Like, you're multitasking, commuting. Like, obviously, you want to listen to an audiobook. You don't want to try to read a physical book while you're in the middle of your morning commute to work. Not helpful for you or the people around you. Reading a physical book, for instance, is better when it comes to perhaps retaining information. So, for instance, there was a study done on students who were given the option to read an assignment or listen to it in a podcast or audio format. At the end of that process, they were then given the quiz. So what they found is the students who read the material versus listened to material performed exceptionally better. So one takeaway from that is, well, hey, if you're preparing for an exam uh, or something significant or, you know, maybe reading a legal, legal document, then, yeah, like physical books or ebooks in that case are going to be a clear winner versus an audio format. But, you know, for entertainment or I'm in a book club, like there's nothing wrong with listening to an audio book. You're still going to you know, hear it. You're going to get the gist of the story and you're going to still come away with you know, quite a few things from it as well. I love uh, listening to biographies on audio. I, I love consuming biographies that way. And something I've done the last couple of years, the first book was with uh, Brandon Burchard's High Performance Habits, is I've started reading the physical book while having the author or the voiceover person 
read it to me via the audiobook and I'll speed it up to one and a half or you know <laughs> 1.75 speed and it's almost like I'm cheating at speed reading the, the book is being read much faster than I could read on my own and we can we can process much faster than we can talk and, and that's one of the problems with reading for many of us and we talk about this in the book is sub vocalization we often when we read to ourselves we read every word aloud in our minds yeah. and it just takes a really long time so I'll put the audiobook on speed it up and then follow along in the physical book as the author's reading it. And, and the consumption of those two mediums at the same time simultaneously really helps me retain the information. Really? Yeah. I have never heard anybody do that before. Yeah. I love it. That's, <laughs> that's a great hack. Uh, do you guys gift books? Oh yeah. What's, I think what's, Jeff does more than I do. What's the, I'm just I think <laughs> you'll get along with our frugal crowd here on Stacky yeah. Benjamins, Jesse. Oh, love it. Just, but, yeah, put me in the crowd then. But Jeff, you guys talk about book recommendations and how mm -hmm. uh, must reads are generally books that everybody else is talking about. I know mm -hmm. I read about a fiction book that Bill Gates liked called The Rosie Project. And I don't read much fiction either. And I read The Rosie Project just because if Bill Gates was reading fiction, it was probably mm. something I laughed my head off. Everybody should read The Rosie Project. It's so good. Mm. But Jeff, is there a specific book or books that you really like to gift? Yeah, for me, when it comes to young leaders in particular, I'm often gifting a book by Liz Weissman called Multipliers, How the Best Leaders Make Everyone Smarter. It was co-written with Greg McEwen who would go on later to write Essentialism, The mm -hmm. Disciplined Pursuit of Less, which is other, another book that I highly recommend. Um, and sort of a companion to that book is The One Thing by Gary Keller and Jay Papasan. But then there's the classics, too, that I'll often recommend to my, my teenage nieces and nephews when they come of age. Uh, and that's books like Seven Habits of Highly Effective People and How to Win Friends and Influence People. Now, admittedly, some of those teenage nieces and nephews that are more like I was when I was their age, it doesn't really resonate, uh, but there are one or two where it, it it's the other extreme. I mean, it's really, truly honest to goodness resonated. So with those that it hasn't resonated with, I've asked them to consider revisiting it the next year or the next year. And I, and I identify with that. I remember someone recommending to me when I was in my early 20s and, and a non-reader, I was wanting to pursue radio sales because I was so, well, that's where the real money is in radio. It's in sales, not in programming. And they recommended and gifted me Zig Ziglar's Secrets of Closing the Sale and Augmandito's, I think, Greatest Salesman That Ever Lived or Greatest Salesman in the World. Yeah. And they just, they, I, I, they didn't connect. I just, I think I was too immature at the time to appreciate them for what they were. But 10 years after that, when uh, similar uh, nonfiction type books are being recommended to me, suddenly it's like, you know, when the student is ready, the master appears kind of a thing. And boy, it clicked at that point. So so as you recommend books, know that not every book is going to be a hit, but don't take that personally as I used to do. It may not be a hit now, but it could be a year or two later, but they'll remember you for having having planted that seed, I think. Seven mm -hmm. Habits of Highly Effective People was one of those books for me, Jeff, that I did not mm -hmm. get it when I read it. And I quote it all the time. <laughs> the book is called Read to Lead, The Simple Habit That Expands Your Influence and Boosts Your Career. You talk about in the book how this seems easy. It isn't easy. You also talk about strategies like Jeff mentioned earlier to read either faster, or retain more. A fantastic read. I know you can get it a lot of different places, but I think you guys have a website set up, right, with additional tools? Yeah, if you're listening to this and it's before August 31st, uh, you can get $500 in additional resources in addition to getting the book for 40% off. That's at readtoleadbook.com. If this happens to be after August 31st when you're hearing this, 
We still encourage you to go there. There are a number of outlets uh, linked to from there where you can can grab the book. And also, if you want to kick the tires and download the introduction in the first chapter for free, you can do that there as well. Readtoleadbook.com. Jeff spoken like somebody who said words like that before for other authors. <laughs> a few times. I, I also have to ask, while well, I have you here about the podcast, my friend, tell us what's coming up on the Read to Lead podcast. Uh, just uh, released an interview with Stephen M. R. Covey, whose dad wrote Seven Habits I, of, of Highly <laughs> yeah. Effective People. We were just talking about that. Yeah, I'm going to be a, a guest on my own show soon. And, and Jesse, I hope, is going to uh, join me. So that's going to be interesting. So, yeah, lots of cool authors coming up. Some you might know, some you may not. Dr. Sabrina Starling, Dory Clark is one of my favorites. She's coming back for a third or fourth visit now on the show. Jill Young, John Meese, Chris McClure. So it's not always, you know, famous names. Um, I think that would kind of be boring. But it's current books that are new, but books that I have find interesting for one reason or another on a, on a variety of, of nonfiction related business focused topics. So you never know what's coming next, but it's always going to be a great read because... Yeah. I've read it first and deemed it so. (laughs) I'm Andy Dwyer. And when I'm not pulling suckers off my tomato plants in my garden, I'm stacking Benjamins. Big thanks to Jeff and Jesse. You know, gee, it's so true that it is all about deciding, hey, what do I need? Like, don't wait for your manager to create your curriculum. If you're wondering why your manager hasn't given you a list of to-dos and things to study to be better at your job, stop waiting and stop wondering because I think in most cases it's never going to happen. Your boss is never going to do it. Oh gee, they have way too many other priorities. Yeah. Take ownership, right? You got to take ownership in your own uh, success. So you want to grow, go grow. You don't need somebody else's permission. I remember back, seems prophetic now, back, uh, man, over 20 years ago, Tom Peters wrote Brand You, and he was talking about we were entering this new phase of the world where it wasn't about working for 30 years. And back then, it's funny, we were cautioning people then that it wasn't going to be about working 30 years, but look at how quickly it's changed. You Mm -hmm. know, the studies that show that many millennials will work just three years at a place before they move. I mean, that's, that's 10 different jobs in 30 years. With that type of movement, it is brand you. It is developing this list of skills. And how many people have we interviewed? And networking, I was going to say. Absolutely. And how many people have we interviewed here on the show that said, hey, all of a sudden I realized I have this skill set and I'm making other people money with that skill set. I can use that skill set to make myself some more money. And to our point earlier, when it came to planning your future and having work that you enjoy, Well, guess what? You can start designing that career yourself instead of putting somebody else in the driver's seat. Yep. You be in charge of you. Hey, let's throw out the Haven Lifeline, OG, and tackle some of life's most important questions. Our friends over at Haven Life Insurance Agency, they put what you, no, not them, you value first. Crab cakes and football. That's what (laughs) Maryland does. (laughs) It is. It is that time of year. That, by the way, is why they made buying quality term life insurance actually simple. So you got more time for crab cakes, football, loved ones, your time. Here's what you do. You go to stackybedjamins.com forward slash Haven Life now, and they will give you a free quote. It's a simple application. It's all online. You get an instant coverage decision. Not like a lot of that legacy stuff where it's page upon page upon page of questions that they can find the answers to elsewhere. Nope. Very quick. Of course, affordable prices. And on top of that, 
policies are issued by their parent company, Mass Mutual, which is more than 160 years old. So you don't have to wonder if your coverage is going to be there when you need it, which really, if you think about buying insurance, that's what it's all about. Today, we're going to throw out the lifeline to our new friend, Stephen. Say hi, Stephen. Hey, Joel and Obi, first time listener, third time caller. So I came across this podcast my senior year of high school. I started listening consistently and absolutely fell in love with personal finance. I just graduated in May with my bachelor's degree in finance and a concentration in personal financial planning. A few months before I graduated, I started working in a small little financial planning firm. And even though I'm just doing entry-level paraplanner work, I'm in love with working here. And I'm so excited to become an advisor someday. Currently, I'm working on my SIE, then my 7, my 66, and then I hope to sit for my CFP exam by the end of next year. I really enjoy working here in a small office setting rather than a big corporate firm and would like to continue to work for an individually owned firm in the future. So all that being said, I just really want to thank you guys for all the content I've gotten over the past years. Even though I haven't learned anything, it's gotten me to go learn elsewhere. So my question is, what would be some advice you two would give yourselves if you could go back in time to when you guys first started working? I've learned so much in less than a year working here, but I know I have so much more to learn. I listen to Michael Kitsis' podcast, and I've learned a lot from there, as well as some books on being a top advisor. I'm just trying to position myself as best I can for my future, and I value your opinions and look forward to hearing from them. I'm an XL, by the way. Thanks. See ya. Steven, thanks a ton for that. By the way, congratulations on all that success. There is a lot of wisdom, OG, wrapped up into the stuff that Steven has said, and to have that type of wisdom at such a young age, I, that just so fires me up. And by the way, for people not familiar with uh, some of the lingo that he used, he talked about the the SIE. What's that, OG? Uh, depending on what firms you work at, some of them require licenses, securities licenses, and that sort of stuff. And then the certified financial planning exam. After that, hope to get that done by next year and get his CFP designation, which we've talked about here a lot. Also, he mentioned Michael Kitz's podcast. Uh, Kitz is, I would say, a, a uh, thought leader, <laughs> I think it'd be fair to say, in the financial mm-hmm. planning space. Uh, one of uh, many, but a super smart guy. We've had Michael on the show here a couple times. So if you could go back, OG, to the beginning of your career where Stephen is now, what's some advice you'd give yourself? I think the biggest thing that helped me was being able to be in lots of client experiences. You know, the average new planner where we started at, at, at American Express, you know, maybe saw two or three client meetings a week. Most of them were new prospect meetings because that's what you did as a new person. You cold called people. And I think what's changed over the last 25 years or so is that a lot of planners are not expected to bring in, they're not, they're not business developers, you know, like it's okay to be an advisor without also being a really great marketer. Now, in order to do that, you better have a really great marketing team around you because, you know, you can't just be really great as a planner and get clients. That's not how that works. But, um, but I think the thing that helped a lot in terms of advancing my ability in planning as a whole was being able to see lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of meetings. So if you have an opportunity to sit in on other advisor client meetings, I would volunteer yourself 24 hours a day to do nothing other than sit in those meetings and take notes. Just say, you know, if you're working at a firm and they've got other planners, just kind of attach yourself to a couple of them and say, I'll be your, your, you know, your junior associate who just sits in here very quietly with, you know, a notepad and takes notes because you'll see 
lots and lots of different types of financial planning issues and, um, and lots of communication type styles and that sort of thing. And, you know, you got to get those 10,000 hours you know, you talk about the mastery, you know, it takes all this time, but if you get them in one hour increments every week, you know, they're, they're not compounding. So to compound that learning, you need to have a lot of experiences over and over and over again. And I will second that and not just the financial planning stuff, because you'll see different situations and different inflection points on things people are mastering and things that they're messing up. But I think also the way that a skilled advisor is able to help people make decisions at a faster rate, because often the, the, the key to success, OG, isn't getting it 100% right. It's having the fortitude to move forward when maybe it's only 95% right. And watching a skilled advisor who's able to help people move toward their goals I think is is worth its weight in gold. But what's something that you messed up that you tell a younger you? That was his real question. I mean, a lot of the stuff that was an issue when you and I were starting just doesn't exist anymore. When I started at American Express, it was three-ish months, I believe, of an $18,000 a year salary, and then it converted into a sales job. That's just not a thing. And and so from a financial standpoint, there was a lot of stress. Some of those issues that always be in a marketing mode and always be kind of working on your on your craft from a sales and marketing standpoint isn't necessarily a thing anymore because although if that's the track that you're on, then it has to be. But it's much more accepted now to be a planner like Steven's talking about and be only a planner. You know, does that make sense? Yeah, I don't know. I wrote some things down and I'll start with uh with what you were talking about and you're certainly obviously way closer to it. You're in it and I haven't been in it in a decade, but I I just still think and this is not what I messed up. I'll get to that in a second, Stephen, but my point for Stephen was going to be that still OG, the financial planning knowledge is not what pays. Still, what pays, and this is a truism from when I was an advisor, is being a rainmaker still pays. Like if you if you really want to make money, being able to develop those relationships, to bring in clients, to be able to maintain those relationships with clients to the point that they want to refer you to other people because you've done such a good job for them, that still pays. And at a small firm, I think it's going to be a little harder to get that, you know, that marketing that you and I got shoved down our throat. By the way, I would not, you know, in a million years want to go back to doing what I did or or what you did, but still, I think that- But it was effective. Well, for all the crappiness of it, learning to be able to open up the door and be the welcome wagon for people to work with your firm, I think is a, is a valuable skill that you're not going to get with a CFP or a Series 7 or a 66 or- you know, clearly well, though, you, you can't be an right. empty and suit. There's, I was going to say, there's a difference though, but in, in those career tracks now, whereas when we were doing this 25 years ago, there wasn't a distinction. You had to be great at both of those things. In fact, to your point, you had to be a better marketer and relationship builder than a planner because there's always people in the office who are great planners who are terrible marketers. And that's still true to your point, which is, you can make a really great income by being a great financial planner. You can make an obscene income 
if you're a great marketing person. And that's not just about marketing financial plans. That's about marketing anything. Anything. If you look at anything, anything in the universe, and you rank where people fall in terms of their income and potential, there's the people who do this stuff. And if you're a really good doer, you can rise in your career path and be a really great doer. And then there's the path of the people who bring this stuff to the doers. And the people who bring the stuff to the doers make five and 10 X income, what the doers make. It requires getting tons of rejection, which not everybody can take. It requires putting yourself in a position that is not always super comfortable, which not everybody can take and still doing it after getting your face kicked in 99 times in a row and going, Hey, I'm Joe. Would you like to buy my widget? And you still know? having the smile on your face. <laughs> and the guy goes, no, thanks. One of my favorite stories, when I was a newer advisor, when I worked at American Express, we had an old guy that worked for us. He was a door-to-door disability insurance sales guy. Oh, oh. One of my favorite stories that Tom would say is, he said he was in, in northern Michigan. He knocked on the front door and he says, hi, my name is Tom and I'm with blah, blah, bam, door shuts in his face. So he walked around the back through the gate Walked to the kitchen door, knocked on the door, the screen door. You know, the door's open at summertime. And the lady says, can I help you with something? He says, hi, I'm Tom. And I sure hope you're a lot nicer than the gal at the front. <laughs> and that's, the, that's, you know, that encapsulates how difficult the sales and marketing side of things is. I see where you're going with that. The thing that I messed up that I would take back, and I was thinking, it's funny, Stephen, I was thinking about this just this morning that uh, I would not have tried to recreate every stinking wheel along the way just because I thought it was fun. And I do think it's fun. There's an, yeah, that's a good idea. Yeah, there's an engineering side of me that goes, no, 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 I don't want you to help me with this. I want to get my hands in there. I want to figure it out, which to some degree does have some efficacy. But in the long run, I can think of one time where the number one planner at all of American Express wanted me on his team. And he told me, that he would show me his recipe. And I looked back across the table at him and I thought that I was being really cool. And, and I said, no, you know what? I'm learning the recipe myself. I want my own recipe. Don't want yours. I want to be a master chef just like you are. Big mistake. Like it is the one inflection point in my entire financial planning career that I, I should have become a member of his team. I should have learned everything I could have about his recipe and then riffed off it later on. And I would have been so much further ahead, so much faster. Yeah. Thanks for the question, Stephen. Hey, if you got a question for OG and I, call the Haven Lifeline. You know what's cool is two things. Number one, Stephen's getting some swag for being brave enough to call the Lifeline and to ask us his question. And even though he can brag about what size he is, and you can too, we're just going to have Gertrude, mom's friend, who is our room mother in our basement Facebook group and our social media uh, manager. She's going to send Stephen a code with some love. StackyBenjamins.com forward slash voicemail is the place to start. It's super easy. You can just ask the question. If your phone has a microphone, StackyBenjamins.com forward slash voicemail. The other cool thing, by the way, OG, is that because of the fact that we were going so quickly through these questions, I think uh, Stephen just left this in the last two or three days. So you can get your question answered fairly quickly right now. Stackingbenjamins.com forward slash voicemail. 
All right, guys, that's going to do it for today. Hey, lots of people to thank today. I'm going to let uh, Doug do all that heavy lifting. I'm just going to end with this, which is if you need good financial planning in your corner and need to make better decisions here as we round the turn into the fall before things really, really start to get busy in November, December, OG and his team are taking clients. Head to stackingbenjamins.com forward slash OG. That'll connect you with OG's team's calendar and you can talk to them about how you would interface with them to make better decisions, not just the rest of this year, but into the future. All right. I think that does it. Doug, you've got it from here, man. What should we have learned today? So what should we have learned today? First, take a lesson from our headline. Maybe cryptocurrencies are getting more traction, but it's still not time to go crypto or bust. Second, take a lesson from Jeff Brown and Jesse Wisniewski. Don't wait for other people to train you. There are so many resources that allow you to take control of your life, career, and Benjamin stacking today. But the big lesson? Other books are great, but remember that no book collection is complete without Stacked, your super serious guide to modern... Joe, come on. You're even selling the book here? Buried in the wrap-up? Oh, God. All right, it's available for pre-sell right now. Just go to stackingbenjamins.com slash stacked. Got there, I did it. Are you happy? To learn more about our guests and for more resources, you can head to our show notes page at stackingbenjamins.com. To learn more about how reading can lead you to more success, check out Jeff Brown and Jesse Wisniewski's book, Read to Lead, wherever books are sold. Also, check out Jeff's podcast. You can listen to Read to Lead wherever you're listening to us right now. This show is the property of SB Podcasts, LLC, copyright 2021, and is created by Joe Saul Cihai. Our producer is Karen Rapine. The show is written by Taylor Stevens with help from Joe and Doc G from the Earn and Invest podcast. After you listen, check out our show notes page written by our website manager and blog editor, Brooke Miller. Brooke and Joe also collaborate on a guide to the show and with lots of extras we couldn't include on today's podcast. Heck, they'll also throw in some life money lessons from Joe and it's all free. It's called The Stacker and you'll find it at stackingbenjamins.com forward slash stacker. Once we get all of this goodness bottled up, it goes over to our engineer, the amazing Steve Stewart, who helps the rest of our team sound nearly as good as I do right now. Want to talk about the show later? Mom's friend Gertrude is the room mother in our Facebook group, The Basement. She also is our social media coordinator, so say hello when you see us posting online. Here's a weird fact. She and Tina Eichenberg are never in the same room at the same time. For a URL that'll take you right to our Facebook group, by the way, type stackingbenjamins.com forward slash basement. I'm Joe's mom's neighbor, Doug, saying, and let's all say it together now. Three, two, one. See ya.
as summer comes to a close, I realize, oh, gee, this year, like a lot of people, especially with, you know, the COVID and social distancing things going on, I did not make it to one of my favorite places, which is any theme park. I didn't go to an amusement park this year. I, I saw pictures. My sister actually went to Cedar Point, which is not far from where she lives. And uh, two cool things. It was fairly empty, like I think a lot of theme parks were. And she got a, just a gorgeous day. Nothing better than being outside riding all the rides at a theme park. You didn't hit one either, did you? But you don't love it like I do, I don't think. I haven't been to Cedar Point in 15 years. We talked about trying to make it happen when we were up in Michigan. But uh, but you've got Six Flags not that far from you. Yeah, it doesn't excite me. It, it, it isn't that great. It's okay. It's not that great. The kids uh, went to the water park right there, the Hawaiian Falls. Yeah, yeah, the, yeah, the water park looks really cool. Well, as summer winds down, I saw this in USA Today. World's fastest accelerating roller coaster shuts down after, wait for this, reported bone fractures. <laughs> roller coaster in Japan, dubbed the world's fastest accelerating ride, has shut down after four passengers reported chest and bone fractures. The Do Dodenpa roller coaster is at the Fuji Q Highland Amusement Park in Fujiyashita City, Japan. The ride's been out of operation since August 12th, according to the park's website. It will remain suspended for the time being, it says, as it undergoes a safety overhaul. This ride apparently accelerates really, really, really fast. According to a piece in, in the Huffington Post, the theme park bills the coaster as having the world's fastest acceleration. It hits 112 miles per hour in just 1.56 seconds. Hmm. A second and a half, and you're going 112. Can you imagine the G's? Your body's just pulling. Doesn't sound awesome. It does not sound like something that, that I would really want. You can watch us on YouTube. We'll have a link uh, on our guide. By the way, if you got the guide to the show, you can check it out. You can also, uh, I'm sure, do a cool Google search, but, uh, but not for me. Imagine if they have to start putting that on disability applications. You know, you were talking before about renewing your disability insurance and they were asking about being a pilot. You know, are you a pilot? I remember, yeah. I remember the ones about, Hey, do you skydive? Do you hang glide? Do you race cars, motorcycles? I remember asking people that when I'd help them apply for insurance protection back when I was a planner, but, but <laughs> Uh, do you plan on heading to Japan to ride a roller coaster? Well, stackers, the show might be over, but the celebrations are just beginning because it is Military Appreciation Month that I want to celebrate people like my brother-in-law, Eric, who is such a giving person. Eric will do just anything for you. And as a Marine, you can see that his time in the military taught him to be a guy who gives to his community, gives to his family, and is always there when you need them. This Military Appreciation Month, Navy Federal Credit Union wants to celebrate members like Eric who go above and beyond. Navy Federal offers member-only exclusive rates, discounts, and tools to empower their members and help them reach their goals. Navy Federal's employees are part of the community they serve. Many of them are military family members, reservists, or veterans, and all branches of the military, veterans, DOD employees, and their families are eligible for Navy Federal membership. In fact, there are so many resources on the Navy Federal website, resources like Best Cities After Service to help veterans transition to civilian life and Best Careers for Military Spouses to support military families. 
visit NavyFederal.org slash celebrate, and you'll see all of their Military Appreciation Month offers and other Navy Federal offers. Navy Federal is insured by NCUA, Equal Housing Lender. 